Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television shows, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I'm questioning why we're doing a film that has a 16% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And my name is Mark, and I think we should do it because it has a 16% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's right. Agreed. This, <laughs> this time, we're talking about Alexander from 2004, the Oliver Stone film that chronicles uh, the life of Alexander the quote-unquote great. And I have written a one-sentence summary. Like, Also, I feel like if you like just hear the title, you know what it's about. It's about Alexander the Great, but it's one. he's one of those figures that... Everyone kind of just assumes they know what the crack was, what was up with this fella, and we're here to tell you the true story. But first, a summary of the actual film and what happened in it without any historical context, and I've written it like this. A king in general conquers distant lands while doubted by those around him, and everyone talks a load of shite. That's how I summarize this one. (laughs) Couldn't have put it any better there. The, The dialogue here is shocking in this film, yeah. 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 The, thing that, the thing that annoyed me, even the tagline for the movie, it, it's fortune favors the bold. That's a Roman saying. Like, that's a Latin saying from centuries later. Like, it's nothing at all to do with Alexander the Great, or even the Greeks, or even the Persians. Nothing to do with them at all. And I wouldn't oh, mind, but like, they have low, like, because of the sources, like you were mentioning, is it Arian earlier, Mark? And Plutarch. Ar- Arian and Plutarch. Arian and Plutarch. Plutarch. Like, we've got. Obviously, yeah. these uh, th- these people weren't on campaign with Alexander, but you know they at the same time we've got so many great quotes from this guy, and I hope to give a few but of them th- later. You know, that's that the could thing. have been <laughs> the the sources for our sources were people on campaign with Alexander because Ptolemy wrote a lot of this stuff, and that's where they got their sources from. So I mean, there's actual quotes, you know, attributed to the guy that they could have used, but no, 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 let's use a famous Roman saying. Great. Well, well, before we get into all of this and all of that, I I do want to tell you a bit more about the film here just for a second because it's such a fucking... We watched it, so we're going to talk about it because it's a fucking... We're sharing the pain. If you haven't seen it, good for you. I started out fairly positive on it. Like, I was like, oh, this is not too bad. But it drags on and it drags on and the acting's shit, but we'll get into it. Oliver Stone's historical films, he has done a lot of, like, biopics, especially ones focusing on American politics, like on presidents specifically with JFK, Nixon, and W. Uh, But he's also mixed, like, biographical stuff with war stuff, uh, like in his trilogy of films about the Vietnam War, uh, starting with Platoon. And Alexander does, to some extent, seem like a natural combination of his skills. And I could see why people would be excited about it. It's also got a fairly star-studded cast with Colin Farrell as Alexander. We have Angelina Jolie playing Queen Olympias, his mother, and Val Kilmer as King Philip the second his father uh and and other like smaller roles like anthony hopkins is in it as old ptolemy which is like a a frame story around the whole thing that he's telling the story uh jared leto is uh hephaestion 
uh, he's Alexander's friend and in the film Lover, um, and Rosario Dawson, Christopher Plummer. I even spotted Brian Blessed as a wrestling trainer. Oh, yes. A big favorite of mine, obviously. Yeah. So, And all these people are yes. trying, to be fair to them. They're all trying. But when this film came out, the only award it was nominated for, it was the likes of the Golden Raspberry, and it didn't even win them, you know? Uh, <laughs> it did win one other award for Most Intrusive Musical Score. Which I think is well deserved. Even oh though I God. do like Vangelis yeah. as a composer, but it's really like a lot of sentimental music under a lot of nonsense talking, right? I do have to say, guys, as well, though, that there is a character here, and being Irish, if I didn't mention this, I'd never be forgiven. Miley from Glen Row is a horse trader in this film. Now, Jacob, you won't know who that is. Mark will. Probably not either, but I grew up with two channels, <laughs> so everyone knew who Miley from Glen Rowe was. You don't need to know anything about it, but if you're Irish out there of a certain age, you'll know who I'm talking about. Sorry, you can move well, on. Now. We have another Irish actor in Colin Farrell, right? Um, and I don't think he's a bad actor, um, but he does have, like I said, a lot. He is in this. He has a lot of sentimental pondering dialogue about like the nature of being great and it has this Vangelis music underneath it and it's just not good. Um like it would be it's stuff that would be hard for any actor, but also he's shit in it. And in contrast, I find Angelina Jolie, like her mother is eccentric and over the top, uh, but I still find her to be kind of a bright spot in that her lines are just as ridiculous, but at least and she's doing it kind of cartoonishly because there's not much choice with those lines, but at least I believe the emotion that she projects, and I just can't bring myself to believe uh what Colin Farrell's putting on the screen. So, like, despite the fact that the film bombed, um, and we, you might be saying why we were reviewing this film, I think, like, the thing that we can't deny is, the, I suppose, how fucking interesting Alexander the Great's story is, and Macedonia, and the invasion of Persia, and all that. So, despite the fact that the film isn't our favourite one by any, uh, by any comparison, it's, it's still well worth using it as an excuse to dive into this yeah, period yeah as we as we so often do um and and just uh, to stay on the film a little bit because the history is such a vast topic right we'll, we'll kind of use it to focus in on what we want to talk about um but i think you described it fairly well michael as a melodrama it, it's got like telenovela vibes in a lot of the uh uh, drama and it does an interesting thing in that first it f it felt to me like it was just jumping around throughout history um, which made it feel jumbled I realized that what they were going for is they're trying to parallel Alexander's own decline and death with that of his father so it's telling those two things together and trying to make sort of a theme out of that but like it also like I did actually really like kind of the bits of him as a child when Alexander was really young because you got a sense of a clear trajectory of his character and growing up but then you have like 28 30 year old Colin Farrell pretending to be a teenager a few scenes later and uh it's so weird uh but yeah it should also be mentioned right that there are four different cuts of this film. And I think we watch slightly different cuts. Yes. Um, they're all too long, but uh, <laughs> the theatrical cut, the original theatrical cut is like, uh, from 2004, obviously, it's 175 minutes. And then the director's cut is actually shortened. So there was a director's cut that came out on DVD. And I suspect I would have enjoyed that one more, if only for the fact that it was 
shorter, uh, 167 minutes. But then the final cut in 2007, that was the one where they were like, right, we got to give all of the context. This is going to be the final cut. We're going to put it all in. It's 214 minutes. And then another seven years later, there's the ultimate cut past the final cut that is 206 minutes that goes like, oh, we went a little bit. All right. The final cut was a bit long. We're going to cut it down a little bit and focuses, focus it a bit. And that's uh, Oliver Stone has now sworn that there will be no more cuts. Um, but, you know, we'll see. It's only been six years uh, or seven years since the last one. So they seem to come out periodically. But uh, the ultimate cut is the one that I watched. I think you two maybe watched the final cut. I'm not sure. Mine was so three I... and a half hours long. Too long. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I saw this. I saw the theatrical cut because I saw this in theaters when it came out in 2004. Mm-hmm. Then I, uh, disappointed in the movie, obviously, I saw it again years later when somebody gave me a DVD of it thinking, oh yeah, this is about Alexander the Great Mark, I love that. And that was a director's cut. And then, again, disappointed, maybe 10 <laughs> years later, I watched the ultimate cut. Yeah, so okay. it, was, it was three hours, yeah, when an intermission, it was... Yeah, it was a lot. When a film has an intermission, yeah, it tells you a lot. Like, it better be good. It better be good if you're going to... I had to watch this over four nights. I had to do this. I was saying it to you, lads. It was like the Irishman. I had to do an yeah. Irishman on this film. I ju- and, and that wasn't so much that, um, you know, I didn't have time, but I just didn't have the patience to put up with it outside of the battle scenes, uh, which I suppose we can go into in a little bit later. Yeah, no, I had to do the same. It's a bit of an ordeal. I think we all had the reaction of like, oh, fuck, I'm only at the intermission when that happened. Um, And it is, um, like, this might sound too harsh, but I do feel like it's almost like an anti-gladiator in that (laughs) if I watched this, I would never want to see another film where anyone wore a toga. Like, Gladiator, as we've talked about many times, was like a a really big boost for historical films. People got into it. People started reading books. Uh, Executives for films started, uh, you know, greenlighting more historical films. And this is like the opposite in that it is actually probably more historic it is more historically accurate than gladiator even i yeah. who know nothing about history can tell that but this film is not good and if i watched it it for three and a half hours and i you know wasn't into history i'd be like ah just put off when i saw another poster of something that looked similar so the anti-gladiator i give to you yeah in many ways this is like the villain of the genre because it's 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 not just that like this got the green light because of gladiator but this should be the great one this should be the best one because this is one of history's most compelling individuals this is like one of history's most well-known stories it covers dozens of modern day countries he's he's an incredibly important person historically and it fucking sucked and probably cancelled the 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 planned green lighting of you know, of, of, of lots of other historical movies. So, oh my God, someone please, please uh, tweet us at real underscore history and send us the meme of Mark's face cut into Obi Wan's face where he's like, You should have been the best of us. That's <laughs> <laughs> Anakin from Star Wars. Someone send us, but Anakin is, Alexa- is Colin Farrell from Alexander. <laughs> That's a very specific meme that I need to see uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> it was the chosen um, one. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm sure we'll weave in and out of it, uh, actually discussing the film and some aspects and scenes and so on. But before we accidentally talk about how shit it is for an hour, uh, let's zoom back to the actual history books, uh, what we actually want to talk about, and basically go to before the start of the film. Because as I said, Alexander the Great, it's kind of like when we talked about uh, Cleopatra or, you know, Caesar. It's like, you kind of know, but do you really know? Um, and I, I feel, I certainly feel that way even after uh, watching this. So I, I think we want to zoom back a bit, maybe talk about the situation before the start of the film. Sure. Mark? Uh, do you want me? To, okay, I'll take that. I was going to say, do you want me to take that? Um, so I suppose probably the thing to do would be to... to um, give a little bit of background on the the sort of the three principal um, uh, political entities. So one would be Macedonia or, or Macedon, which is the the thing that Alexander is king of. Then the next thing is the Greeks. So who, what was their relationship with Macedonia? Why are they involved? What's going on? And the other thing is then the Persian Empire. So um, in the time of Philip and Alexander, the best way to think about this is we covered the movie Three Hundred before. This is a hundred years later and the Greeks are not united because they're Greeks and they, they very rarely unite. They only ever unite when somebody else bigger comes along basically. And they spend the rest of the time fighting each other. Um, Macedonia is very much on the periphery of the Greek world. So in Greece, you've got a series of cities, all of which have their own governments, all of which are contending with each other for dominance, all of which are, are like have rivalries, there's backstabbing, sometimes there's alliances, there's little groups that are grouped together, which are called leagues. Um, and in this time, the, the city Thebes is the dominant city in Greece. Um, Macedon being on the periphery, they're to the north of what, of what you would think of. Um, so if you think of where modern day Greece is now, the north yeah. of that, that's that's about where Macedon is. The modern day country, North Macedonia, encompasses about 4% of the landmass of what was the kingdom of Macedonia, which is why there's a political argument about their name. Right. Um but because they're in the north, the Macedonians are in sort of a go-between. So they're between the Greek civilization and what they would regard as barbarians. So immediately to their north, there's, a, there's an area called Thrace. And then to their northwest, there is an area called Illyria. And they are non-Greek speaking, uh, what the Greeks are called barbaros right so they're they're like tribal peoples who have their own kings who have their own systems of governments they don't necessarily live in big cities the way we think of uh greece being so macedonia this, is very much gone is this kind of the balkans area really mark yeah no, exactly balkans, balkans. Yeah. yeah 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 so the macedonians are in a weird position they're sort of half greek half barbarian that's sort that's sort of the way certainly the greeks in the south would be very snobbish about it they would Which regard is why the Macedonians we, as... we do see them in the film like Ma macedonians uh, or uh king philip specifically like trying to prove that we have arrived we are just as good as you my son is being taught yeah. by aristotle that sort of thing yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a massive chip on the shoulder with, with Philip, which uh, I'll, I'll explain the origin of that in a minute. But they they're they're in this weird precarious situation where they 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 feel they're Greek. They have the Greek religion. They speak a form of Greek. They speak a, a Greek dialect. Um, but the Greeks themselves, the quote unquote proper Greeks in the south, would regard them as farmers. Like they're a bunch of they're a bunch of illiterates up in the north there with their sheep, you know, whereas people down in Athens and Thebes all think they're intellectuals because they have ship trade and walls yeah. and things like that, right? So when the Persians then invade, which you see in the movie 300, they march through Macedonia and Macedonia is very 
poorly organized politically. It's very divided. There are several royal dynasties come and go. Um, there's lots of assassinations of kings. There is family rivalries. Who's going to be the king? Who's not going to be the king? Their succession is not a direct male line succession. So the, the son of the king doesn't necessarily become the next king. It is generally what happens, but it's often a cousin might become king or an uncle might become king or whatever. So it's not quite as set as you might think the way, you know, yeah. if the king of Sweden dies tomorrow, his daughter is the, prince, the crown princess, so she becomes the queen, whatever. It's not quite that simple. Um, basically, what happens is uh, there's a king called Amentas, and he's the father of Philip. He comes to the throne. It's not really important what happens with him. He dies, right? But while yeah. he's king, in, in the various political machinations that are going on, he has several sons, the youngest of which is Philip. Now, Philip right. is sent as a hostage as part of a political deal to the city of Thebes in the south in Greece. And while he's in Thebes, he's he's basically held as like a royal hostage. And this is to, keep, to make sure that Amentas behaves himself and doesn't try and extend the influence of Macedon up to where the Thebans think he shouldn't be essentially come on um, now mark they clearly copied that from game of thrones right yeah i wonder i wonder where they got this idea so mark, it's exactly the same it, idea to tie it back to uh, we mentioned the taban um sacred band in a previous episode in the 300 episode yeah. so this is the same people yeah so thebes yeah. has has arrived at a level of dominance over the greek cities and the reason why it's arrived over a level of dominance is they had a famous general called epimonidas and Epimonidas won a battle called the Battle of Leuctra. And in the Battle of Leuctra, he smashed a Spartan army. The first time a Spartan army had been defeated in the field, which kind of crushed the idea of Spartan invincibility. The Thebans had beaten them. And, and, pro and not just beaten them, like really, really gave them a bit of a hiding. In the Theban army, there's a group called the Sacred Band, which is made up of 300 men, 150 pairs of male lovers who would fight together. And were like an elite, an elite force. Yeah, it's pretty hot. Like. But they're an elite force until Alexander got them. But they're an elite force, and uh, they 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 were sort of revered in the Greek world. But in any case, Philip is being held in Thebes, and while he's there, he comes across Epimonidas, and he sees Theban politics. He sees how they're conniving, how they're influencing politics in the cities around them, how their agents are infiltrating Athens and how they're keeping the Spartans from getting more allies around them so they can't challenge them again. He's also seen Epimonidas' military reforms and he's learning the whole time from this, unlike what you, you, what you, would, uh, you might expect. So when you say Game of Thrones, it's very much like when Theon is taken to Winterfell. Yeah. So yeah. Theon sort of starts becoming a Stark, you know, but really what he's doing is he's learning how, you know, a proper northern man should behave. Well, Philip is learning how a Greek should behave. So he mm -hmm. sees all of the best things of the Greeks, but he doesn't think much of them. He actually thinks they're really petty and they're squabbling fools and that they should be uniting and he he looks at the cities and he looks at macedonia and he says well really there isn't much difference the difference is there isn't a unified center so he decides i'm going to be the unified center that that's and essentially that, what, what drives him the yeah. other thing i suppose with macedonia just from my own little light reading on it was that it was fairly resource heavy like it had great land it was mountainous yeah. but it also had great plains it had lots of metals so it was it also had great forests which you know a lot of greece lacked at that time for their navy and all that so it did 
have a lot of kind of natural advantages as well that would oh, allow absolutely. it once the right leader was there that would allow it to actually expand absolutely it was absolutely crying out for centralized leadership now when when philip returns to macedon so he, he returns in around 364 bc his older brother is the king he's a man called perdicus one thing I will say about the Macedonians, they're not very original with their names, so names repeat quite a lot. They're not always yeah. related to each other either, which is upsetting. But um, So he returns uh, under the reign of his, of his brother, King Perdiccas. Now, Perdiccas dies in a battle, and he dies in a battle against a, a tribe called the Illyrians, who are in the, the, the northwest. Um, but before he died, he left Philip as the regent. So he's sort of, you're ruling in my name while I'm away on campaign. And Perdiccas had a and young son who, who was called Amantas. Hmm. Sorry, um, I was just going to say, and was he the one uh, other brother? Were there other brothers vying for this spot? Or I the other brothers are dead. The other brothers yeah. have died. So it's just yeah. these two left. Um, yeah. uh, Perdiccas dies in battle with the Illyrians and leaves Philip as, had left Philip as a regent. So now it's Philip is left with the young son of Perdiccas, Amantas IV, who is the crown prince. And you might think, okay, this guy is going to become uh, the king. But no, Philip just goes, the throne's mine, fuck you, you're a child, it's not much you can do about it, I'm the regent anyway. And he sets about putting his his long thought up plan into effect. Um, So he has a a series of improvements that he wants to make to to Macedon while while being regent and uh, shoring up his position as king. Now, all of this is under the pretense that, oh, yeah, no, Amantas will be the king once he's old enough. That's fine. Yeah. I, I'm just a regent. I'm just his, his his goodly uncle looking after him, you know. But in reality, Philip has absolutely no interest whatsoever in, in yielding the throne to, to a child, um, even if he did manage to grow up. Um, so Philip sets about, I, I won't go into great detail about it, but anyways, Philip sets, up, uh, sets about going about reorganizing Macedonia. And one of the key things he does is he brings in a, a total overhaul of the military forces. Now, this is the biggest problem that Macedon had previously had. It had a really disunified military. So when the Persians turned up, they just weren't able to muster enough men at any one time to actually put up any kind of a resistance. So professional but Philip army, changes I can that imagine because he creates what a professional means, Practically, how did he go about uh, arranging that and other aspects of Macedonian culture? The way the way to think about the professional professionalism of the army is it's, it's fairly simple. Well, the easiest way to do it is just sort of split it in two. So he he basically divides the army into two main corps, if you like. So he he has the infantry, and he reorganizes the infantry into what's called the Macedonian phalanx. So the phalanx is what you see marching with the spears pointed out at the start of the movie at the battle. Um, and what they're doing is they're carrying a weapon that he introduces into the infantry, which is called the sarissa. And so the Sarissa is an enormous pike. It's a 20, uh, 20-foot pike that each man will be trained on how to use. And when you're trained in a phalanx formation, it depends on which row you're in, what your job is. So if you're in the front row, you hold the, you hold the spear at a certain level. If you're in the second row, you hold it slightly, slightly higher up. The third row goes higher up again, fourth row higher up again. So it gives the effect of like a, like a man-made hedgehog almost marching forward. Um, those groups of phalanxes were trained so that they had a greater level of maneuverability than your standard Greek hoplite formation, for example. The Sarissa was much, much longer than what a Greek spear would hold. So they could engage the enemy at twice the distance. But they also had a, a level of flexibility that, they, that the Greeks didn't have. You no, notice in the movie 300, the guys are holding the shield with the left hand and the spear with the, with the right hand. In the phalanx, you have to use both hands to hold the, 
to, to hold the, the Sarissa because it's so large. And the shield would actually just be strapped onto your arm. So you didn't have to, to worry about like maneuvering or whatever. It was where it was. Um, and they were they were drilled night and day into a, a pretty elite uh, group. Each phalanx formation would have around 250 men in it. Um, and they would know how to like change formation to a wedge, change it to a square, you know, march two points off to your left, march two points off to your right. Kinda. And they were drilled night and day. It kind of would remind you in a modern day context when you see those weird YouTube videos of North Korean ceremonies where everybody is moving. <laughs> yeah. right, it's almost like one organism. You know what I mean? Yeah. Although there's literally thousands of people, but they've, they're so well trained and drilled that they are moving as one. Um, and yeah. they don't almost they almost don't even have to think about it. The, the other thing he does, which, which is different to the Greek style of fighting, is he makes a real pride of place out of the cavalry now in greek warfare cavalry were never decisive you would you would never deliver a decisive blow with with cavalry in greek warfare part of that is just the terrain greece is very hilly it's very mountainous you can't really maneuver you, you can't it's, it's not given to horse maneuverability basically uh but philip is taking advantage of the fact that there's a there's an area between macedonia and the greek cities which is called thessaly and that's plains it's flatland and there's lots of good horses there and uh, he he's t- he basically takes the horses from there and his own Macedonian horses, and he forms cavalry units. Um, and then one key group is referred to as the companions. So in the movie, when you see Alexander marching off with his or galloping off with his with his guys on the horses, that's the companion cavalry. They're the elite of the elite. They are the top horsemen out of the army. They will form around the leader of the army. Yeah. So uh, so the. So what Philip has done is he's divided the army into two broad groups, infantry and cavalry. Uh, they would then become competitive with each other over which which group has the highest honor. Like, so, oh, it's the infantry are going to win the battle, not fuck the infantry. Cavalry are going to deliver the decisive blow. And they, he, he, he used his knowledge of Greek warfare and barbarian warfare against them. He knew how they were going to form up because he'd seen it done. He had learned from Epimonidas all the new Greek innovations. He knew how to outdo them. He knew how to use maneuverability of the horsemen to scare them, to shock them, to to make them feel like they were going to do something that they weren't going to do. So Philip's great thing that he would do in battle is he would force the enemy to make a mistake. He was brilliant at forcing the enemy to make a mistake. And throughout history, most generals, that's what they're actually trying to get you to do when you when you when when it's head-to-head battle. General Lee, for the Confederate Army in, in the American Civil War. That was his thing. He he was he was so decisive and fast in his action that you would just you would make a tactical mistake, and he knew you were going to make it. And most of the time, he knew what mistake you were going to make, and then he would exploit that. That became the hallmark of the Macedonian army: force a mistake, and, exploit the mistake. And Mark, he, uh, the other thing I what I read was that Philip he was one of the kind of first generals in history to actually have a dedicated engineer corps. You know, oh yeah. So for yeah. siege warfare, for all that type of thing, and that kind of, I suppose, all of from what you're saying here, all of these kind of advances and new techniques and kind of extreme drilling and all that, it basically means that Philip's army, Philip's Macedonian army, was outclassed everybody else around him. Yeah, I mean, dramatically, the level of the difference is the, and it's it's just like what the Romans do in Italy. The thing that defeats everyone, organization. They just have a level of organization that other people don't have. So when something happens, the army corps knows what to do. A unit will know what to do. A commander will know what to do in any given sort of situation. If my left flank is starting to collapse, then I'm going to spin slightly to the left to offset that collapse. 
a barbarian tribe's not going to do that. They're just charging at you with axes or whatever. You know, so this this group becomes very battle hardened very fast because there's so many border disputes. There's so many tribal uh, problems on the borders with Macedonia, and Philip just goes around hammering each of them into place again and again and again and again, like dozens of battles, the small scale battles. But he just goes around ruthlessly crushing all of these different tribal groups until they just stop rebelling because there's just no point. He's going to crush it. On top of that, the, the uh, structural change he makes to the government is he does, uh, and it seems like a really obvious move to us, but nobody had done this before. He, what I was mentioning earlier about the centralization of the government, he tried to make his own position more centralized, shore up the role of the king. And the way he did that was he got the oldest sons of each of the local sort of provincial lords or provincial powerful men or generals, and he had all of their sons come to court and they would all live together with the prince and this and is would, some of the characters that we see faffing about with alexander throughout the course of this film right yes, because it should be mentioned that beyond Cassandra. um yeah all, all of them all of them see they're all a blur to me they all are like th- the film does not do a great job of distinguishing them except for has have fast have fast question is a character and the rest of them i just feel like are sure a blur. Is. and i'm like if we're spending three and a half hours i'm sure you could get me to understand and care about some of these and i, I think they maybe do for short periods of time when someone betrays someone or whatever but then i'm like oh i don't know who that was anymore but this makes sense because there's a real even though they don't do a great job of distinguishing them there's at least this sense of alexander and like his brothers effectively like his brothers in arms who are so integrated into the army and into his life and growing up and we see part of that with brian blessed drilling them into shape (laughs) yeah and that's that and that sort of thing is exactly what happened he would take the the heads of all the noble families and they would they'd essentially be in a boarding school (laughs) do you know what i mean so they'd all and they all grow up together and and what it does is it, it engenders not just a loyalty to each other and to the and to who the eventual king is but the sitting king becomes an important figure because he's your direct patron at the same time if you're a a lord who's off in a borderland you're not going to do anything because your eldest son is with the king so if you if you betray him he's got your kid like so you're not gonna you know so it sort of forces a uh, a centralization of of the government now along the way as well one of the one of the key things that philip does is he allows for promotion in the army which is not something traditionally classical armies would do so you could just be a lowly farmhand or whatever you know like a shepherd's boy or whatever but you could become a general in philip's army if you were good at it and so he has guys around him then his top guys are also guys who are very very loyal to him he's very good at sharing the spoils he makes sure his guys get rich when he gets rich so as he as they win battles, he gives a lot of the money away, you know, and he becomes beloved. He's he's an absolutely beloved figure, Philip. He's, he's not quite the drunken lech that Val Kilmer portrays him as. Now that's not to say he didn't like a drink. The man liked a drink, like, and 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 he was a drunk. Like I mean, in in, in a way that most people back then were drunks, you know. Um, and it should be said, he would fight in the line with his soldiers. So throughout this transformation of Macedon from a from a, a tribal mess into a regional power. Philip took a lot of wounds. He took a lot of hits. He had scars all over his body. He was missing one of his eyes, as the, as you show in, in the movie. He just he took an arrow to an eye during during siege. Um, he had been saved by one of his generals, who later on in the movie you see saving Alexander, a guy called Clytus. He was he was known to history as Black Clytus because he had black hair. It was a white Clytus as well. It was great. Um, but he he, uh, he he was loved by the men because he was in the thick of the fighting. And Alexander learned that if you are seen to take the blows that they take, they will love you for it. 
Caesar did the same thing. Yeah, and it's and such a thing that this... we see in films and stuff, and then we're like, ah, oh, that wouldn't happen in real life. And I was like, well, sometimes it happens in real life. Sometimes it did, yeah. Sometimes it really As... did. And so Mark would would like so all of this kind of allowed Philip to kind of establish hegemony over Greece, apart from famously Sparta. So he had was it the League of <laughs> Corinth it was called? He kind of yeah. tried to unite unite them together to invade Persia eventually. That's the idea. So yeah, when when Philip had sort of settled Macedonia and settled the tribes around Macedonia, he 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 had several marriages to help sort of politically settle things. Well, I say several. He was married seven times uh, to settle things down most of the time, you know, one of which, of course, was uh, Alexander's mother, which I'll get to in a minute. But he was looking for any opportunity, really, to get involved in in, in Greek politics. Um, he, Bit of he a always schemer, got, really. Absolutely. No, a political animal. Like a, a, a political, a politician beyond what the Greek leaders thought he was. There was a famous Athenian, speaker called Demosthenes, one of the most famous uh, uh, rhetorical speakers in history. And he, one of his things he's famous for is what's called the Philippic, which is speeches he gave against Philip, mm. trying to get the Greeks, no, 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 don't go with this fucking barbarian guy. He's going to kill us all. He's going to get us all killed. He's going to, he's, he wants to turn all of Greece into a monarchy. We don't want that. We want democracy, blah, 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 blah. Well, democracy for rich white men, but that's what we want. Mm. You know, we don't want this king, this foreign king, you know, so, um, but look, Greek, Greek politics, uh, y- even now you might say, are a mess. And they always have been. a fracturous mess. The cities fighting each other over. And, and really, everything's always about short-term gain with the Greeks. They're just they're very silly about which power is on top and who's, who's the big boy in this area. And who's the big, you know, it's, it's just it's terrible nonsense, like in, in the modern concept. And Philip knew how to exploit it. So he basically just kept playing each side against each other and had himself, uh, had himself named as the head of the League of Corinth. Now, look, there's there's a load of detail, a load of whatever. Well, we won't bother getting into it. Essentially what that is, is, that's the Greek cities had loosely agreed that the Persians had to pay for what they did to Greece. Mm. And they had decided that at some point when we managed to stop fighting each other, we're going to invade Persia and we're going to fuck them up for having the temerity to come over here. Like that that's that's basically what the, what the League of Corinth is. And they so are they for, talking about when they came over in sort of three hundred times around yes. four eighty BC. So yeah. like well over a hundred years before then, right? Yeah. So imagine this imagine taking a hundred years to sort yourselves out. But in the intermediate period, Athens and Sparta have a massive war. You know, yeah, which yeah. leads to both of them yeah. sort of falling and declining away from that, which is why Thebes is the powerful city at the time. Um, and why Philip needed this League of Corinth, obviously he needed the manpower, he needed the, the cavalry, ships, he needed all that. Gold. But it ships was kind of like what I was reading was that he really needed the Athenian navy because he had yes. no navy. So if he wanted to invade Persia, the only way he could really do it was if uh, Athens played played ball, really. Yeah, the Macedonians were not sailors. They're, they're, they're infantrymen, they're cavalrymen. That's what they're good at. They're not they're not open sea warriors. Like they're not even the Spartans would hammer them on the sea. Like, you know, they're not it's not really what they do. But uh yeah, so so Philip essentially uses politics, bribes, marriages, and uh, uh, one sort of famous battle, the Battle of Chironea, um, to sort of hammer the Greeks into submission. The Battle of Chironae is sort of the Greek, this Greek city's last stand kind of against his dominance, where a group of them, Athens and Thebes, combine against them. But they just, they're just not strong enough. They're just, they're, they're too foolish. They can't organize who's going to lead. They can't, they can't uh, communicate well enough together to have a, a united line against them. 
And crucially, Philip's young 16-year-old son, Alexander, leads the left flank of Philip's army in this battle of Chironea. And he pulls off a fairly spectacular military move where he drives into the center of the line where it's sort of split and he basically rolls the entire Athenian left line, which is a crazy, I know that sounds mad and you're, and you're, and you're like, I don't know what any of that means. Just trust yes. me. That's a really, really big deal. This yeah. kid <laughs> led a cavalry charge and smashed the back in, the back of a, of a Athenian army and it broke them. And so the, the Macedonians won this battle. And it was actually quite a low uh, death toll on both sides, but it, it was, the cementing of Macedonian dominance over the Greek cities. Mm. So now there's there's one game in town. Yeah, and depending on which version of the film, Alexander, you watched, uh, like we see some of this play out, but what you're describing sounds more interesting than what's in the film in a sense because we see like you know we see um philip when he's sort of amassed his power and Mm. we see him kind of showing that he's like i'm the i'm the big boss now and the greeks should see me as i am and all of this stuff but we don't really get the broader context and and we know through the film that he's you know he's he wants to launch this attack into persia but they don't even really talk about why or any of that uh which is a bit mental given that you know it, building that up as like this is why we need to do this uh would really help because a lot of the film is just spent with uh ca- various characters telling alexander you're not like your father and they like well, i don't know what that means <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well even yeah, uh, just no to, context yeah even uh, just thinking of Alexander as a young man uh, in his father's, you know, on that left flank, as you said, apparently like Alexander was even at that age at 16, he was jealous. And he was apparently of said to his mates, like he was like, my father is beating me to everything. He's leaving me with no worlds to conquer. You know, so he was even at that young age, he was like, Jesus, dad, leave me Illyria. Leave me, leave me something to actually conquer here. And obviously yeah. As we know, he eventually went far beyond that. Yeah, now, and uh, sorry, I, I was just going to say that, like, it's, I think, like, we've talked about Philip for a long time now, and the episode is about Alexander, but this is all essential to understand, uh, as we were saying before recording, the debt that Alexander owes to his father in, because I think when people talk about Alexander the Great, like, even just the name, and knowing that he conquered loads of the world, we think that, you know, things were a certain way until Alexander arrived and changed everything. But it sounds to me like, you know, Philip was the one who had that spark of actually introducing new concepts. And he's the one who subjugated the nation and basically teed everything up for Alexander to, in a very short period of time, do some spectacular things. That yes. I mean, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, most... I would suggest most modern historians would be very happy for Philip to be known as Philip the Great because mm. what like it's I mean it's exo- like I'd have to go into exhaustive detail to, I don't know, obviously that's not what we do here but it's it was extremely difficult for him to do what he did to unite Macedonia first put down all the tribes get the right political marriages in point then get all the Greeks except for Sparta to to uh, to bow down and acknowledge that I'm the guy in charge he he becomes what's called the hegemon the hegemon mm-hmm. of the Pan-Hellenic League. I'm in charge, basically. Like yeah. it's no, it's no mean feat. The other thing, just to quickly say on him, he actually did invade Persia before Alexander. So mm-hmm. there's actually a beachhead of Macedonian troops in Persian territory before Alexander even becomes king, and that's that's under the leadership of two generals, one called Parmenion, who's in the movie, and one called Antipater, who's also in the movie. He's the guy who gives offence at the, at the uh, the wedding celebration, and Alexander throws right. his cup at him. I'm glad you pronounced that guy's name, Mark, because I was going to call him Antipater. 
But anyway, and Antipater, yeah, yeah. So we've, as I said, we've talked about Philip for a while, but um, I guess going up to his death and how he died and like what, how that spurred Alexander on, because we haven't really talked about Alexander. We want to, I'm sure, touch on like his mother and all of that. But like Philip himself, uh, if we want to conclude his story, how did things end for him? Is it uh, accurate to what we see in the film in that he's stabbed in the street? So in in the in the movie they show an insult given to one of his bodyguards where he rapes him, basically uh, drunkenly rapes him. Now I don't know why that's in the movie because the, the sources I've read say it's actually Antipater that did that. Yeah. Um. That 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 raped uh, Pisanius, the, one of Philip's uh, bodyguards. But just to say, Alexander's position is precarious. He's not Philip's oldest son. That's that's that might come as a bit a bit of a surprise to people who watch the movie because Philip's oldest son is not in the movie, yeah. uh, nor is he mentioned very heavily in the histories. But he has an older son called Aradeus, um, with a different wife. So he's Alexander's older half brother. Aradeus is it's difficult to say what's wrong, but it's said he has learning difficulties. Mm. So he's deemed by some to be illegitimate. The reason he has learning difficulties, according to some people, is because because Alexander's mother poisoned him when he was a baby. Um. Yeah, it affected him later on. Now, it's the, the histories are very sparse on exactly exactly Poison how in a baby. That's yeah, low. yeah, 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 yeah. You know? It's it's low, like, but all all of which is to, is the reason I'm bringing that up is because if we're going to talk about Philip's death, we we have to cover the the like it's a murder mystery. We don't actually know yeah. to be to be honest yeah. who's behind it. We know who kills him. It is this guy Pisanius that sh- that the movie shows. It is in the situation that we show. It does happen that Philip says, no, stay behind me. I want to walk out in front of the Greeks and show them that I'm not afraid and no man is going to kill me because my people love me. That's all true. One thing that they do leave out is that event is actually the marriage of Philip's daughter to her own uncle, which is a bit, we won't get into it, but it's okay. the marriage of his daughter. To, it's it's it Olympias, ancient Greece. It, it's Olympias's brother, uh, who's also called Alexander, uh, marrying uh, Philip's daughter, Cleopatra. Oh, so it's not, the daughter, it's not his daughter's wedding. Okay, but they wouldn't be related then if it's Olympia's brother and uh, uh, daughter. Technically, his niece, it... though. It's his niece. Oh, his niece by, it... by marriage. Sorry, by yeah. marriage, yeah. 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 They're not tactical. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah it's fine, fine. <laughs> by, stand, <laughs> yeah. by the standards of the time. Yeah, so, so this he is, does go this, out this and is get a, stabbed. But, this yeah. is this sort of one of the great what-if people of history, Alexander of Epirus, or who, as he wanted to be Alexander of the West, while his nephew was Alexander of the East. But we won't get into that. Anyway, they're at this wedding, and Philip comes out and is like sort of, you know, uh, shown to the to everyone, the visiting dignitaries. There's there's senators from Athens, there's people from Thebes and Corinth and whatever there. And one of his bodyguards, this guy previously mentioned, Pisanius, he walks up to him, um, gets in the way of the limelight, Stabs him in the ribs, right into the lung, punctures his lung. Philip's dead. As the movie portrays it, it's pretty good. Alexander being sort of proclaimed on the spot. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't show why he's proclaimed on the spot. He has rivals. He's not yeah. necessarily definitely the heir. And he has a rocky and turbulent relationship with Philip. As the movie does show, he is exiled at one point for giving insults to one of Philip's one of Philip's uh, favorites, one of his friends. Um, he he uh, is known to be kind of power hungry. 
He is a tempestuous young man. He's very close to his mother. His mother does hate his father. That's all of that stuff. That's all true. People were afraid of his mother. Rumors that she had poisoned Aridaeus were, were doing the rounds. Rumors, uh, rumors that if you got in her bad side, she'd murder you. That was all sort of doing the rounds. But as well as that, like Philip couldn't have been happy that his his son Alexander was being told by his mum that his real father was the god Zeus. You know, which, yeah. you know. Not great. Not, yeah. not brilliant. Like, yeah, I mean, and, and look, Alexander at this point is always just like, oh, shit, that's rubbish. Like, be quiet. Like, just shut up. Philip's my father. Because his goal is I'm the legitimate king. I have to be king. So the theories about Philip's death, some people say that Pisanius was being paid by the Persians to kill Philip. Some people say the Greek cities had him murdered. Uh, and some people say Alexander had him murdered. Some people say it was Olympias. Some people say it was Olympias and Alexander. Now, yeah. a lot of people are like, nah, nah, that's, it was because it was the personal insult. Maybe the Persians are involved. I am inclined to believe that it was Alexander and Olympias who actually did it. And the reason why I'm inclined to believe that is because that's not the only person they kill. So when Philip is murdered, I mentioned earlier Philip's nephew, who's supposed to be the king, Amantas, he yeah. suddenly gets murdered as well, shockingly. Because he, he is the legitimate heir to the throne in a, in a lot of ways. But Alexander has him killed. And doesn't doesn't Philip have a new son with this new wife, or is that... Daughter. Uh, he has a daughter. daughter. A daughter. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. But, and and Olympia, actually, uh, speaking Olympia. of that, uh, just uh, years later, Olympias, and this did happen, Olympias r- roasted this daughter, so this half-sister, uh, like told her some Alexander. really bad insults. Uh, yeah, no, literally roasted the got child her on Twitter and, just and made <laughs> and made the mother watch it, and then the mother Cleopatra committed suicide, and this actually oh. happened. So, like yep. Olympias was a bit of a you know, like she was rootless. Everything what we can see from the sources is that it was all about her. Only ambition was to make sure her son was king. And yeah. everyone well, else, the, any the danger, ultimate ti- the ultimate tiger mother, isn't it? Isn't that what they call them? Helicopter mom or tiger mothers, isn't that what they call them? But he, yeah, and he Olympias, also was. Uh, I, I was going to say, Olympias, you told me that the obsession with snakes is real. Um, but like, it sounds like maybe she wasn't portrayed eccentric enough, even though Angelina Jolie already makes her pretty eccentric in the film. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's the only thing that bothered me really about Angelina Jolie. Well. Firstly, her age, as as opposed to Alexander's age, like as as opposed to Colin Farrell's age, was a bit ridiculous. That she she was meant to be his mother. It's just that's not believable at all. But the the thing it was the weird snake accent. We could have done without that. That was really odd. Like um, slithering. Sorry, Mark, you don't know Harry yeah, Potter, but yeah, yeah, Jacob will know what I'm talking about. Kind of yeah, that, that whole mouth. that whole bit was really weird. But like she was, um, yeah, like some people thought she was a witch. And she was in, she was involved in fairly dubious uh, cults. The, like she was in the cult of Dionysus, where they would like, you know, have these mad, crazy, drunken orgies when they were on drugs and drinking loads of wine and it, like just mad stuff. Like she she was into all of that kind of all that kind of, and like blood magic and all sorts of mad stuff. She was into all the occult and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, she was a, a controversial kind of figure. But Alexander also, though, Antipater, the person who he had had the row with, the guy he threw the cup at. He yeah. also had him killed. Mm-hmm. And crucially, the, when the bodyguard who killed Philip, the murderer, when he was caught, they killed him too before questioning him. Which is, 
a little bit convenient for Alexander that no one can really be like, did you do it? Because, you know, he's like, well, obviously not. And, I, you know, and I've murdered everyone who I think it might have been. So, you know, it was clearly it wasn't me. But I mean, yeah. if nothing else, I think that points the finger at him, frankly. You know. So at either way, at the age of 20, Alexander has become the head of the largest military and strongest, probably best drilled military force in uh, the whole I own that part of the world. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I suppose our thing was that he's inherited all this stuff from Philip. Obviously, we don't know about their individual relationship too much. Otherwise, just what we see in the film and what is projected from sources. But whatever you say about his personal relationship, he did. Uh, he did leave him all the right tools to take over the known world. Absolutely. And it, like, it is important to say at this point as well that even before moving out of Greece or Macedon into Asia, like Alexander does have a reputation at this point. Like the, the things he achieved as a teenager were pretty, pretty remarkable. Like having that level of responsibility and being that successful commanding, commanding cavalry in a battle as a teenager, pretty unheard of. Like it's not, it's not commonplace. Like there's, there's an apocryphal story where uh, on the way to, uh, to, where he gets murdered on the way to the wedding, Philip says, the uh, the people here, you see how they cheer for me. They love me. All around us, from, from Greece to Macedon to, to Asia Minor, they say, Philip is a great king, but Alexander is simply great. You know, so it's just it's kind of, you know, that kind of myth about the child already already exists. And there's all of these stories that are propagating. Yeah, right? even when he, when he famously, Alexander, and this is shown in the film when he tames his horse, you know, um, yeah. this wild stallion. Apparently, Philip was so shocked after it. He was so, he was in a way, he was very proud of his son, you know. Um, Absolutely. And, and he said, you must seek out uh, a kingdom equal to your ambition. Uh, Macedonia is not big enough for you. Now, was this written, obviously, <laughs> a lot later or whatever, but still. After the fact, yeah. Yeah, it still kind of gives you an idea. I would just point as well to the, to the thing I mentioned earlier about Alexander being with a group of men, a group of like boys growing up with this group. It's in their interest also to spread the rumors of the greatness of their friend. Because remember, it's not definitely the case that he's going to be king. Yeah. But if you can, if you can make people believe that this son of Alexander is great, or this son of Philip, sorry, is great, then the likelihood you're going to push your own advancement because if your best friend becomes king, you're going to have a good old time most likely, you know? <laughs> and that is what happens. So Alexander becomes king. There is uh, an attempt at a revolt in Greece, but he moves so fast that they just surrender when they see him coming. He doesn't even have to fight them. He just arrives almost like lightning fast, 3,000 cavalry just arrives. The Thebans scotch shit. Sorry, no, 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 sorry. We didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. He's like, right, give me your troops. Marches down to the next city. He's like, do you want to do this? Do you want to? Do you all want to die, or do you want to swear stay to your oath? So the Greeks just got fucked. Jesus, we're, we're with you. Like we can't, we can't be, we can't be dealing with this crazy kid. Like you know, <laughs> if he's half the guy his father is, we'll all die. So let's just stick with him. Um. So age of twenty, Alexander is king, undisputed. All his rivals, except his brother Aridaeus, who was one of his best friends, they're all dead. Um, Aridaeus incidentally sticks with him right by his side his entire life. Hmm. Alexander loves him like he's he, he, he treats him really really well. Um, he becomes important later, kind of important later. Um, 
But yeah, so it's Alexander funny that he's then, not in the film at all. Seems like he's not even not even mentioned in the film. If not you're even, like not yeah. necessarily historically important, but if you're trying to explore the character of Alexander, you know, uh, then maybe that would be a relevant person to put in there. Yeah, but, you know, for whatever. sure. Yeah. Um, this kind of brings us up then, like, we've talked a lot around it, but, like, this brings us to, like, the conquest uh, of the known world, let's call it, uh, as Alexander is known for. So there's obviously a lot to talk about. I'm sure we could zoom in on any one battle uh, and discuss that for an hour if we wanted to. Uh, and the battles do look quite good, I have to say, for all our criticism of the film. It's fairly well put together action-wise and cinematography and all of that. You get a fairly good understanding of what's going on, even though it's complex. Sort of, They're, they're describing these tactics and people running around on horses. You're still kind of like, you get the gist of what's going on, which is nice. <laughs> but uh, if we should maybe touch on the the most important battles uh real quick and, and how they're depicted yeah it, it's my it's the save like for me it's the saving grace is how the the battles in the film are put together and it kind of uh shows you how he used tactics and why he's still studied to this day tactically by the u.s army amongst others um but like i what i did like in the film um just to touch it on it was the eagle eye vision when they of that of the battles where they have an eagle overhead so you could see the vastness of the forces in front of you and all that and you could almost see it like if anyone's familiar with total war the the game uh you know you can see you have this eagle eye view of the army um so you kind of really see how he, uh, alexander deciding to manipulate a flank or to come in at an angle on a certain way uh, leads to a collapse that he can take advantage of, as you were speaking of earlier, Mark. So I suppose his first big trip into in, into Persia, Mark, it's it's a couple of ba- battles. We don't really have the time to go into all the details. The one in the film, though, um, I suppose it's Gaugamala. So yeah. why is that so important? So Gaugamala is the sort of the third big battle uh, against the Persians. It's important to say that where that is, that's in that's in modern day Iraq. Um, so if you think everything from Iraq west to Greece, he's already got all of that, including the Levant, including like Jerusalem, all of Turkey, Syria. He, mar- he he marched into Egypt. Egypt have declared him to be Pharaoh. Like he's got all of, that's all that's all with him. But the Persian king of kings still lives, Darius. So he's had two major battles already. One at the Battle of Granicus in in, in modern day Turkey, where he fought the what are called the satraps, the lords of the the area. He defeats them fairly handily. Then he fights Darius himself at a place called Issos, and he defeats Darius. And Darius flees. After Darius flees Issos, he sends Alexander a letter, and basically the letter says, "Okay, I will cede all the territory west of of the uh, the fertile crescent to you." And you can be king of all that area. And I'll be king of this bit. And there's older generals like Parmenion and Antigonus and a few, a few, a few of Philip's old pals. They all say, Alexander, take that. Like, you'd you be the richest man in the world. This is mental. And he's going to give you his daughter. And there's the, there's the famous line which he is said to have said, which is, no more than the earth has two sons will Asia bear two kings. I'm not going to give him up. He dies. There's one king of Asia and it's me. So he chases Darius. Uh, Darius moves into his heartlands into into Iran and he gathers this absolutely vast army. Now look, the numbers, they're always bullshit, okay? They're always bullshit. Arian will give you uh, one set of numbers. Plutarch will give you a completely different set of numbers. Quintus Curtius yeah. Rufus will give you another set. Diodor Siclus will give you another set. 
suffice it to say, he's dramatically outnumbered. Yeah. At I least mean, three, at least three to four to one, even oh, by modern estimates. Like 40, would, he had uh, about yeah. forty-five thousand, and they reckon yeah. modern estimates that Darius had about one hundred and twenty thousand. Yeah, you know? he was so. Dramatic. How he did it, I don't fucking know. Mark does. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this, this battle, this battle, Gaugamela. Um, you, you know, Jacob, you've said to me before, oh, it's always the most pivotal battle in history. Blah blah blah. Mm, this is this is the mo- this is the battle that's been probably attempt like generals that have attempted to copy this more times than any other battle you can imagine yeah like even the, the russian assault on stalingrad was an attempt at, at, at doing this at doing what alexander did here and it's the perfection of a, of a, a military move that's known as uh the uh, hammer and anvil so the idea is basically and, and he says it in the movie like the infantry will stick the persian line and we'll be completely outnumbered and we will be we'll be like slightly withdrawing because of the force of numbers but Alexander is the companion cavalry led by him personally will wheel around and a, a screen of light infantry will come in to engage the Persian cavalry. Those light infantry, by the way, they're all dead. They haven't got a fucking hope, but they're sacrificed so that it splits the Persian line. And then in that split, the cavalry form a wedge with Alexander at the point with his big plumed helmet, which is accurate in the movie. And they charge directly into the center of the line where the Persian king is. That's all true. And that is what he does. He smashes into the side of the Persian line and they just rout. And what happens, as I said before, in ancient battles, they, no one stands and fights to the death. That's not what happens with, with armies. When you see your unit start to rout, you run. That's what happens. It's human nature. You can't help it. If the flight instinct kicks in. At that point, that's when the killing gets really, really severe. The The Persian army melts. I mean, it just, it just falls apart completely. And Darius escapes off into the into the hinterland with with a couple of his bodyguards but at that point there's no more formal resistance the center of the persian empire is alexander's as you see his triumphal march into babylon all all it looks it looks unbelievable i like i didn't like the scenes in greece like jacob said a lot of them kind of it looked very keech kind of i almost thought the scenes in greek kind of looked cheap almost like one of Trump's hotels, you know, with the f- yeah, fake yeah, gold yeah. embroidery everywhere. A, a poor person's idea of what richness looks like. <laughs> yeah. Um, but now maybe I, I, it's probably very historically accurate, but that was just my impression. Uh, but, you know, they do a great job on Babylon and you see the hanging gardens and yeah. you see the, the mix of luxury and poverty and, you know, the, the massive markets, the exotic animals. Like it does transport you to a different world when you're when they are walking into babylon and i think if any scene in the movie is my favorite uh in terms of what i think they did well it's that scene yeah i, I would agree with that I, that's probably my favorite scene in the movie too just their the, the battle and the aftermath the, the meeting yeah, of I, east and west you know yeah. i suppose i just feel like uh, it is well uh shot etc but there are so many scenes throughout the film where it's like Alexander becoming enamored with the East and like long scenes of dancing and celebrating and some marriage or other and everyone's drunk and they're all arguing and then someone's poisoned and that happens eight times. Um, yeah. So so I, I was a bit over it by the end of it, but I could certainly see at the start there when they arrive in Babylon um, why, why that would be the effect for you. Yeah. And I think... Sorry, go ahead, Michael. Well, one of my questions I was going to ask Mark is, Mark, this is kind of a, an expert topic for Mark. Um, he's always interested in this period. But like, was in the movie a big deal, as Jacob has said, a big deal, a lot of emphasis is put on uh, Alexander being kind of an open-minded guy who wants to marry East and West. 
of it mm. obviously he wants it to kind of be under his control uh, hellenistic culture to a certain extent but he's still very willing to accept the customs of others and he famously has this kind of forced marriage of the yeah. The Greek soldiers and the Greek generals to the kind of um, their equivalent in Persia and Babylon, the nobles of the uh, area, yeah, yeah. Like, so is there is that something? Do we have a, do we have any knowledge? Is that something the film just wanted to portray, or is that something that Alexander actively sort of sought out? So it's it's difficult. It's difficult, right? One of the primary sources for Alexander is is the biographer Plutarch. Now, Plutarch is, as I just said, a biographer. He's not a historian. The agendas of the historians always have to be taken into account. The reality of the situation is we don't know what his personality was. All we know are the facts of what happened. The forced marriages or the arranged mass marriages, that happened more than once. He did do that a lot. He was encouraging his generals to have children with the locals. Now, from a military point of view, you can't just exhaustively keep bleeding the Greek manpower if you're going to have this massive army. Eventually, you're going to have to use the locals, right? Wouldn't it be a good idea if the locals were the children of your soldiers? Probably, because they're, 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 there's a built-in loyalty. Is that where the idea of blending East and West kind of came from? Maybe. It is true to say that he did start dressing in a sort of a blended half-Persian, half-Greek way. He did wear Persian gowns. He did wear, uh, like, over his Greek clothes. And the the Macedonian idea of what a king is versus the Persian idea of what a king is don't align at all. The Macedonians, as you'll see in the movie, they speak very directly and very frankly to Alexander. To, to, More to the first king. among equals. It's exactly More, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. The the Greek word Basilius, uh, which is which is king. Like so, he he's never his title is not among the Greeks. Is not the same thing as the title that Darius had among the Persians, or the title that Alexander had among the Persians, which is Shah and Shah, King of Kings, or just Great King, as they call And um, I read Mark that the. Greeks around and the Macedonians around Alexander got increasingly kind of annoyed and they ridiculed at first the fact that um, the Persians saw him as this sort of godlike character and they would pros, you know, they would bow down before him and like the famously some of his generals when they saw this happen the first time they just burst out laughing. You yeah, know? they did. Yeah, That's, uh, but it eventually did. That, yeah. It did great a bit. Especially with the older generation. You must remember, these are not men who were educated by Aristotle. Well, Alexander was, as were his direct companions. They were educated by great minds, you know, and he understood, it is true to say Alexander understood the customs locally are not the same as our customs, and that doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just the way they are. But I always, I was always struck by Philip's need to unite Macedon and then Philip's need to unite Greece. It's that on a vaster scale. Alexander's trying to do that with the Persian Empire and Greece. So uh, this whole, is he trying to blend cultures? I'm not so sure that's what it is. I think it's more political expediency than anything. That, that, that's, what, that's what my opinion is on it anyway. But he on doesn't stop note, in Babylon. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. That's what I was, no, I was going to say it's the exact same thing that, like, I, I, in the film at least, you know, he's, he's continuing to push East at first to catch Darius, uh, who unceremoniously turns up dead, shot by some bandits or something. Um, Killed by his own men, in fact. 
I see. And then the rest of the film is about him continuing to push East as his mental state sort of declines a bit and confidence in him from his troops also declines because they're like, why are we here? And we don't necessarily (laughs) as an audience get a clear idea of why he's doing this besides greatness. Like, is it glory he's looking for? Is he a megalomaniac or are there reasonable reasons uh, in trying to establish this empire? What's your opinion here? At first, there's reasonable reasons to continue east, and and the least of which, in fact, is to catch Darius. Darius yeah. is of dubious legitimacy anyway, as as king. We we didn't get into the Persian politics. We don't really have time for, it. but he's a usurper anyway. So it, it he's not that legitimate anyway. Um, but really, the thing is, the the Persian Empire extended very very far east, and its its sphere of influence went into what's what's modern day Pakistan and India and Afghanistan. Mm. So Alexander's um goal was firstly to settle that but he was also uh only educated to the level that a person in those days could so he had no idea where in the world really he was and how far east it actually went as far as he knew like he could be getting to the end of the world here he just didn't know and no greek knew and part of what he was trying to do certainly was just ambition he wants to maybe he was a flat earther and he wanted to find the edge you know, well, it was in know. his empire that the circumference <laughs> of the earth was first calculated. I'll have you know. But anyway, um, it's that, that, that's, that's, that's later in history. But anyway, he, why does he keep going east? Frankly, we don't know. We actually just mm. don't know. Um, my opinion on it is is that he is trying to create the greatest empire the world has ever known. He's trying to go further than the Persians did. He's trying to he's trying to unite as many people under one crown as possible, provided it's his crown. And as he keeps going. Things keep interesting him. You must remember yeah. he's very young too. He's very, very young. Um, and he has that that verve. But the thing that's really extraordinary about him, um, which which isn't or actually is mentioned at one point in the movie, he fights fifty battles, personally, fights fifty battles, and he wins all of them. And no general before or after achieved that level of victory. It's 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 absolutely absurd that he would win that number of battles, and he just kept winning. So if you keep winning and you're on a crazy winning streak, and a new challenge gets put up to you, you're probably just I gonna have another go, aren't you? The you know? the, the megalomania, though, it, it is a legitimate thing to say. Like he named, as far as we know, at least twenty cities after himself, from Alexander, oh, yeah. Yeah. Alexandria in Egypt, all the way to Kandahar in Afghanistan and beyond. So that was definitely something. And apparently, before he went to Persia for his invasion, he went to the the to Delphi, where there was a famous uh, you know seer who you would go and visit to get to read your future. And she was busy that day, but that wasn't good enough for him. So he went in, he dragged her out. And he said, no, you're going to tell me now. And she just went, you're invincible. That's it. You're invincible. So this guy, <laughs> like he believe, he kind of had a half idea that he was the son of Zeus. And he's been told by the famous oracle at Delphi that he's invincible. So for when I put those two together, I was like, no wonder he kept going east. Well, you know in, what I mean? In, in, in Egypt, too, after, after he becomes crowned pharaoh, there's, a, there's an oracle in Egypt at Siwa. And he goes there, too. And he says, you tell me, are the rumors of my birth true? Am I the son of Zeus? And she says, truly, you are God's son. You are, you are the son of Zeus, Ammon. You are invincible. Now, those are two, those are two oracles who aren't related Can to Can I trouble you for a donation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you're just becoming the crown, the, the, the emperor uh, of, of the, you know, the, the, the western part of Persia and you're the pharaoh of Egypt and you have this massive army. You're probably going to tell him what he wants to hear, you know? 
like realistically so how much so do you actually far- believe any of that himself hard to say i i suspect he didn't believe it at all but knew it was politically expedient so didn't stop people from saying it let's put it and he he did decide to keep going towards india anyway so where was his next big battle and probably his last big battle mark uh so so he 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 pushes into pakistan and into india and he comes to uh the river hadaspis where a very very large army under the under the um, leadership of a Indian, a local Indian king called Porus, comes up. Now, in the movie, they portray this to be a tropical battle, and that is just a egregious error of geography because <laughs> that's what the, that's not what that part of the world looks like. Frankly, it's not a tropical forest. There isn't monkeys yeah. throwing fucking stones at you from 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 trees. It, there isn't a monsoon. That's that's not. Are you sure those are monkeys though? That I think they might be a special tribe of peoples. Yeah. Um, oh, it's that, ridiculous! This it's is ridiculous. the scene that definitely didn't fucking happen, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it is. Let let me just let me just uh, clear this up. They fucking knew what monkeys were. All right, Jesus Christ! There was monkeys all around the Persian Empire. They were exported. They were they were used in in shows. They existed. The Greeks knew of them. They didn't think they were they were a strange tribe of men that they'd never come across. I don't know what they were thinking with the script. Yeah, and that, if you I, are blessed enough they, not to have watched the film, that's what happens when they're sort of exploring, like, ah, oh, we, we've met this new strange tribe, but they're just small monkeys. <laughs> Alexander, Colin Farrell shaking a monkey's hand, you know, yeah. while looking extremely vacant, as he does in most yeah, of this film. He does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, the Battle of Hedaspes, Alexander fights uh, King Porus and there's an, a really really large battle it's it's uh, it's on a knife's edge for a bit of it and eventually what always happens happens Alexander wins the battle and mm-hmm. this this point is kind of famous because Alexander's really impressed with Porus he thinks this guy's this guy's a serious serious fighter serious general this is really impressive he's put up the best struggle against me that anyone's put up against me frankly so he he has Porus brought in front of him and he says to him uh you fought really well. You're you're a, an honourable enemy. How should I treat you? And Porus says, "As I am king." So Alexander says, "Okay, you can still be the king of the area as long as you recognise that I'm your king." And Porus goes, "Okay, cool." So he basically just stays in charge, but then he just he sort of you know recognises that Alexander is his king. Um, in the movie, they give that line to Darius's daughter Statyra, yeah. which I which I don't really understand why they did that, frankly, but um. Oh, treat me like a princess, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" In reality, Alexander just married her. You know, yeah. <laughs> one one of his two Persian wives. He married another Persian wife, the the daughter of the previous royal line, so that he would be legitimate. You know. So at so, this stage, his his empire stretches from literally Egypt all the way to the Hindu Kush, the Himalayas. Like this is yeah. like three thousand miles. It's insane how big it's got, but it his his army is getting pissed off. Yeah, there's there's a there's a point when they're laying siege to a local city where he takes an arrow to the chest. Alexander does, and he gets he gets wounded. In the movie, they show him getting a spear through his horse into it. That's not what happened. What, what happened in reality is he he jumped over a wall. Um, when they were when they were when they were putting their siege ladders up against this fortress, and he took an arrow, and uh, he was carried off the battlefield, and there was fears that he was going to die, and he had a really bad fever, and blah blah blah, etc. etc. and so on. And he uh, he gradually recovered, but it took its toll on him. He was weakened by it, and there was there was fear that he was dead, and there was real panic then amongst the companions, amongst his friends, because he had no son. He had mm. three wives at this point, um, but no son. So there was 
there was a, a bit of a fear. The fear around the succession started to bubble up again. Meanwhile, his older brother, Aradeus, was just off in the corner, keeping his mouth closed so nobody killed him. You know what I mean? <laughs> just being very, very quiet, playing the long game uh, off in the corner, you know. Um, and so they pressed on, kept going east nonetheless. But eventually the rank and file of the army just started to become exhausted. And it it's shows been 13 years, hasn't it? It's been yeah, like they've been gone a long con- time. Constant Haven't war. seen their family. They yeah, thought they were going to east. just go to Persia, maybe do a few battles, head home. But instead, yeah. it's been 13 fucking years. Like, yeah. And they're at the end, they're at the end of the world. Like, and, and the other thing is, they just don't see any end in the land. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe it isn't the edge of the world. Like, maybe Aristotle's wrong about where the world ends and as, as he plainly was. But they, uh, they, there's what's called the mutiny. And uh, there's, there's actually a couple of mutinies, but the, the, the one, he, one he argues them down. But eventually, they convince him. They say, Alexander, we're, we're, we're done. Like, can we go back and consolidate what we've got? And at this point, uh, the injuries are taking their toll on him, just like they did on his father. Um, you must remember, there isn't a ready availability of painkillers and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, that anesthetics and things like that. So if you, yeah. if you carry a wound, you're carrying it like, so in a lot of cases, the anesthetic of choice is alcohol, which is part of why Philip will, will have been drinking quite a lot. Like, I mean, you take a spear to the leg and get one of your eyes gouged out and see how clever you are without paracetamol, you know? So they're, they're, the guy's drinking quite a lot at this point and things are getting a little bit wild and he's eventually convinced, let's come back to Babylon and, and we'll reorganize everything from the central point or whatever. But he is furious that his army won't keep going with him. So as a punishment... Or this is this is my belief on it anyway. As a punishment, he marches his army through the Gedrosian Desert. And he claims we're gonna do this because they say it can't be done and it's never been done or whatever. But really he's doing it as a fuck you to the soldiers. Like you're not gonna let me keep doing my doing my mission. Well, I'm gonna march you through this desert and uh twenty thousand men die on the march. That's it's, fairly it's more, psychotic if uh yeah, if yeah. True. it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. No, it is. It's absolutely true. He did do it. Like he marched. I mean, th- uh, if it was intentional, like as a fuck you to his own. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, be... look, people, people differ on why. You, well, I, I just can't think of a reason why you do that with the with the vastness of your army, rather than taking mm. a small force and getting the rest to march along the coast, maybe or take a boat. Uh, yeah, well, Nearchus, <laughs> one of, one of the companions, Nearchus does actually. They do build a fleet and they do sail, and the, the plan is that they'll sail up the Gulf and then into, into Babylon. And they do do that, like, but Alexander marches an enormous army through the, it's just a ludicrous army through the desert. You would just, and I just can't believe a military, a military uh, strategist of his level would believe it'd be doable without a huge number of casualties. Like, it's, it's, it's just, it's not feasible. Remember Kingdom of Heaven? You're going to march your army into the desert away from water. That's what he does. <laughs> How could we forget? <laughs> he knows, he knows well what he's doing, you know, so. So he's 32 and he's back in Babylonia, but he's not well. So what's what's going to happen now? He's not well. He takes a he takes a fever, um, and he becomes bedridden. And the 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 sources vary to the degree of his sort of his mania at this point. The disparaging sources will say he was completely insane at this point. Um, other sources will say no, he. He, he was just very ill and he was hallucinating and he was in bed and he was sweating and losing strength and, and whatever. Um, and he eventually, he, uh, he dies in bed in Babylon as the movie portrays. Now, the question is, was he murdered? Mm-hmm. Um, or did he just succumb to an illness? 
it's very very difficult to say it's it's like one of the great murder mysteries of history like was Ale- who murdered alexander but which is for why me, I, th- I think it's a good uh, good idea in theory to parallel him and his father right because as you called that another great murder mystery in history as yeah. well and it's yeah. it's telling not just about you know what actually happened but rather like the world that they've built in that they are now involved in it like there's so many people that want them dead that it's hard like take your pick you know <laughs> yes yeah like at this point you know he the vastness of the number of enemies he's built up is just incredible you know so, so he he will have given slight to a lot of families uh, if he bestowed honors on one family and not on another that'd be that'd be a slight maybe he could he could be breaking persian customs that would upset nobles or upset courtesans or upset you know you wouldn't know for for me i i, I think it's actually more likely that he he had some kind of a lung infection from the time he took an arrow because he the way the sources portray it it sounds like he doesn't ever really fully recover now that on top of really heavy drinking and then marching through a desert i i i I would suggest it's probably a combination of all the wounds he took and uh possibly then you know contracted some kind of a local disease not being bad but like if i was on my deathbed uh, even if I didn't know it was my deathbed, like when I have a bad cold, I don't want a room full of 40 people standing over me, watching me sweat and, you know, in absolute pain. So maybe he just wanted to go. Maybe he'd had enough of Ptolemy and all the boys and Perminian and all them lads fighting over his legacy because they were all apparently asking him, Mark, who's going to be who's going to be yeah, your successor? And he so, refused to. to so say. I think this is a this is a point actually against the, the, the murder theory, because. They, he didn't have a son yet. There was no yeah. nominated heir. And, the, and his generals, his the companions, these friends, this group of friends who would later become really vicious enemies, um, they knew that, that that was true. They knew there was no successor. So they knew the only thing that would happen would be chaos. So it's not really in anyone's actual interest at that point, unless they felt, I can definitely win for him to die at that, at that stage. So you see in the death scene where they're all crowding around him, and this is alleged to be true, where they're like, Alexander, tell us, tell us, the army will divide, there'll be war. That's one of the lines. And he's supposed to... Now, in the movie, he says nothing when he lifts his the, the ring. Uh, some of the traditions have it that he say, he lifts his ring up and he says, to the strongest. And then, and then Which is not a great fucking thing for a king to say. No. That's, you're, just, you're basically saying, have a war. Um, yeah. Some of the traditions say he says, Perdiccas. Uh, Perdiccas is one of the companions. He's one of the, the, uh, the commanders in the army. One of his friends who... Uh, who becomes regent after Alexander dies. Um, and then some uh, some sources say he said something like Craterios, which is to, to the strongest, but some people think he said Craterus. Mm. But Craterus was dead. So, you know, or black, or, or uh, that, that. He could have just been rambling. Who knows? But he could have been rambling. Mm. We don't know. We, honestly, we just don't know. I, I think the likelihood is he died without saying anything. I, I would suggest, I would say he probably lost the power of speech at that point. Um, in any case, there's a, a, a what what happens after he dies is what's um, sort of romantically referred to as the funeral games, and it's it's what always happens when a king dies without an heir. It's the greatest series of civil wars you could possibly imagine erupt. So, yeah, and it's a real like really shows the unsustainable growth of uh, this empire in such a short amount of time, uh, or the, this area carving it out, making so many enemies. And then, yeah, he does try to, you know, have a son or what have you. But it's still like his ambition. It, like we we do, um, 
we do envy him for or not envy he's glorified for his lasting legacy but the legacy is not really in uh, it's more in like setting an example of things that could be done right rather than practically yeah, yeah. he didn't create a new realm as such although i suppose the melding of cultures did sort of uh continue to it's a hellenistic it, age yeah. it, it did take place it's it, like it suffice to say that after alexander died that's the end of the classical period of history so like that's that's the marking end point when he's dead so after him is it's called a hellenistic period and the cities that he founded yeah. the alexandrias they become colonies they're greek colonies so there's a huge influx of greek culture into the east and that that is extremely important historically it, it leads to the the development of a lot of the modern cultures um it the blending of east and west it, it does happen to, to to a certain extent the successor kingdoms that come after his death essentially what without getting into the the the, the, the weeds with it, the generals divide the areas up so ptolemy who you see takes egypt and he becomes he 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 actually steals Alexander's body, and brings it to uh, brings it to Alexandria where the tomb was, um, and that's another great mystery of history. Where is his body now? Because it was stolen. Whose descendant um, Mark was the famous Cleopatra from our uh, yeah. So this investigations is, this is, into the, the history of Rome, you know. Yes, this is Ptolemy, who's who's the ancestor of the famous Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah, and the it reason show in Cleopatra the movie, is white, right? <laughs> yes, the reason she's white is because this guy's white. Yeah, and he marries a he married a like a. Some people say she was a hawker, like uh, Ptolemy. He married this, he married this like Persian court girl, uh, who Alexander was just friends with because he thought she was she was hilarious, apparently. And Ptolemy <laughs> was just completely was just this woman is is amazing. So he just took her with him. Like, do you want to become? Do you want to come and be the queen of Egypt? She was like, all right, <laughs> yeah, let's do that. But it shows uh, the lighthouse of Alexandria, which is annoying because that wasn't built when, when he was like. But anyway, they they all divide up. Different generals take different areas, and then as always happens. They run afoul of each other, and there's several decades of, of wars between the what's called wars of the successes, the wars of the Diodokai. Um, Alexander does; he has a son posthumously. He actually has two sons posthumously, Heraclius and Alexander. Um, and Alexander is born of his wife Roxana, who's in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Rosario dressed Dolph. like a. At one stage, uh, I thought she was dressed like a curtain for her marriage. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah she was a bit. Yeah, yeah. Now she would have been um, Afghan, probably in the modern in the modern context. That's, that's she's from that sort of area. Um, she uh, basically is uh, flees to uh, to to Macedon uh, to be under the protection of Alexander's mother, who's still alive at this point, of course. Um, and eventually, the character played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, Cassander. He gets himself in control of Macedon itself, and he just fairly unceremoniously murders every member of Alexander's family that's left alive, yeah. as you do. But don't worry, that, he gets his. He gets killed. He always so. plays a horrible character. The, that guy, he's he does, yeah. typecast. He, he plays Michael Collins' assassin in that movie yeah. too. You know, like that's there's what? no. I don't know why. Henry VIII. You know? He was Henry VIII. <laughs> Henry VIII. Well. Yeah. He has one of those faces, though, doesn't he? He just looks yeah. like a bad guy, doesn't he? Yeah. So, he looks uh, like he's about to stab you in the back. <laughs> Probably anyway, so, suffice to say, these regions all gain a huge influence of Greek culture, Greek monetary system. New trade routes are built up. There's some fabulously powerful kingdoms that last for centuries, and there's decades and decades of wars that that continue on until uh, the last of them are subsumed into the Roman Empire several centuries later. 
So yeah, and it's really interesting how a lot of this is. I mean, it's obviously due to Alexandra, but as we were talking about, like uh, Philip is the one who took those and sort of uh, used those tactics in Macedonia and spread it, and it's to a certain extent his. Uh, I mean, it is definitely his legacy as well that this, this these same battle strategies and bits of culture are spread throughout the whole world just based on him being sent off as a hostage. Yeah, and I think what's what's the 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 difference between the men is Philip had these ideas and he put them into practice, but I don't think he could have foreseen the scale at which yeah. Alexander adapted them to. So they, they yeah. just he he just had like victories that on a level that had just never been seen before and has never really been seen since like there's there is a reason why he why he's called the great like nobody wins 50 battles without losing that it just doesn't happen but it, it did with him especially at that age you know dead at 30 and he served as a, a kind of an inspiration from everyone from caesar to napoleon down through the yeah. years as well you know yeah yeah, yeah and, and, and oliver stone much... <laughs> for a melodrama <laughs> yeah well, I was going to say he's very much a um, one of those figures, you know, dying young doesn't really hurt if you manage to achieve something like that, right? It's like the 27 Club, all these people who've died in yeah, the 27. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. always start to think like, oh, what if they went on to make more uh, amazing art or in this case, <laughs> conquer more of the world or what have well, you? Um, it's it's well, really one of One of the only good lines in the film <laughs> um, is Anthony Hopkins at the end uh, when he is playing Ptolemy. He's in alexandria and he's just he's finishing his book on alexander and he said his his uh failure so i, I think he's referring to mar the marriage of east and west he said his failure towered over other men's successes and yeah. that kind of line i was like that's fair it's enough pretty good, yeah. Yeah. no matter it's what good. you think of him that guy left his fucking mark on the world you know yeah yeah are there any additional final thoughts or quotes you'd like to work in I, I would just say the, the dialogue in this movie is absolutely horrendous. I, I don't know what they were going for. At well, one part, it seems like it's it's, it's this Shakespeare in the park. At another point, it's 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 like they've blended multiple scripts together. I don't know what's happened, but it's so strange. The actors can't deliver the lines. Um, and Colin Farrell, who has since admitted he was neither uh, he he wasn't he wasn't healthy at the time of, of the film. Um, he very was, much he so. Was the, he was deep in the midst of, of uh, issues with addiction and, and and so on, and he himself thinks it's a really poor performance. Um, yeah. But I do, but I do think he he does deserve some defending from the point of view of the, the how poor the script is. It's really really bad. I, I don't think anyone really delivers a, a line well, other than maybe Brian Blessed and uh, <laughs> uh, Christopher Plummer. Maybe are pretty good. Like Plummer's good as Aristotle, I think. Um, and my but my main uh, problem other than the movie having a bad script and being boring, is uh, I, I don't like how belittling it was to Darius and the Persians. I think the per Persian army's not doesn't it looks like a disheveled mess. And while yeah. it was constituted of lots of different tribes, lots of different peoples from lots of different areas, this isn't the first time a Persian army lined up together, which is what it looks like in the movie. It's It, it just looks like a total mess. And I, I don't think that did any favours really to uh, what is an older and one of the world's great cultures, uh, Persia. And it's been done several disservices by Western films at this point, which is yeah. uh, starting to get, get my, uh, get my goat at this point. Like I would like to see it portrayed well for a change, you know? So. Yeah. Challenge there for all the filmmakers listening. Um, Michael, I know you gathered lots of quotes. Any you want to leave us with? 
No, I think I'm all out of quotes or any decent ones okay. anyway. I just think that the one standout memory of this film for me will be a horse charge against an elephant charge. And I don't care what yeah. anyone says. <laughs> I know the music movie was fucking terrible. It was three and a half hours long. <laughs> but at least that will stay in my mind. And that was and they used real elephants, which is pretty cool. You don't often none of this, you know, CGI, Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, massive elephants these are real elephants and you can see the chaos you know that they're bringing to the to the battlefield you know so unbelievable there there is one quick like uh, apocryphal sort of or allegedly alleged to be true story of alexander which i think is a good idea of what uh people at the time thought of his character or people later on when they're reading the history thought of his character when he was in greece before he invaded persia and he had just uh gotten essentially the submission of the greek city states he was in the city corinth and while he was in Corinth, he, the as was tradition, all of the the notable citizens would come and, and congratulate you, and sort of almost like swearing fealty, you know that kind of thing. They would all come along, but not just the not just the politicians, the local philosophers and so on would come forward. And at the time, there was a very very famous philosopher, a guy called Diogenes. He was a, a, his philosophical school was cynicism. Right? Mm. He's a pretty funny guy, this Diogenes, right? But he didn't appear. And I was like, where is this? Where is Diogenes? He's the most famous philosopher in the city, and he's not appeared. And now the lads are all running around. We can't, we can't find him, Alexander. We can't find him. So eventually one of the scouts comes in and said, he's out in one of the suburbs. I was like, what's he doing? He says, sunbathing. <laughs> so Alexander mm-hmm. says, right, I'll go out and I'll talk to him. So he arrives out to, to, to the suburb of the current where Dodge and he's just lying on the ground, sunbathing, having a, having a lovely old time. And he walks up uh, to sort of cast a shadow over Diogenes and, and says, uh, uh, Dio- great Diogenes, um, I am a I am Alexander of Macedon. I'm the hegemon of Greece. Uh, I'm charged with leading the revenge war against Persia to punish them for burning the temple in Athens. Uh, ask anything of me, and it shall be yours. And Diogenes says, "Take two steps to your left. You're blocking my son, young man." And everyone around him reacted like, "Oh, that's not a good thing to say to Alexander." They all thought he was going to fly off the handle and lose it. But he turned to Ptolemy and he said. Uh, you all, you all laugh at this man, but I tell you now, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. So, pretty nice good, one. pretty yeah. good. I think I've heard that one, um, but yeah, it's a good story. Um, not unlike the film. So, any sources we want <laughs> to point people to if they want to learn more about this? Um, well, the primary sources there are. I mean, as you might imagine, there's a lot of uh, primary writing. Um, on alexander from the from the period because you as michael was saying like he was he was the hero of a lot of romans and so on um so the primary one um i would suggest is arian now i know it's like it's a primary source and blah 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 blah, and it's difficult to read it's actually not and arian focuses a lot on the military aspect um it's called the anabasis which means the the anabasis of alexander which means the the alexander's expedition mm-hmm. um if you wanted to more put mildly, an ex like that could just be going for the a expedition. Nice walk. Yeah. yeah, he's just yeah. He's got, <laughs> he's, got on, he's got on his <laughs> got on his holidays to Persia. He might he might go to India while he's there. Um, if you want more of the sort of the, the hypocritical stories and the stuff about his character and the myths and stuff, you would be better off reading Plutarch. Um, there's a collection called The Age of Alexander, which is a series of Plutarch's biographies about him and then the people around him. Um, and then there's a there's a Roman historian as well called Quintus Curtius Rufus. I we'll link these in the show notes. Um, who has a good uh, account of the events as well. For modern sources, I would uh, 
for a bit of balance, I would recommend John Granger's Alexander the Great Failure. Uh, this takes a, a fairly um, controversialist uh, view of things, which I quite like. I always like the controversialist opinion about how Alexander failed and the failure to name an, an heir caused chaos and et cetera and so on. Um, so that'd be a good one to look at. Uh, who else? Um, Philip, Philip of Macedon. Um, there's a, there's a, a good number of books on him. Uh, one I would recommend is called Philip II of Macedonia, Greater than Alexander, and that right. is by Richard Gabriel. And then the last one is a, a nice slim volume called The Hellenistic Age by Peter Green. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. And the book I kind of just jumped on for this one is, because uh, it's a narrative history, I did. I knew Mark was going to be the details man on this one, so I just wanted to get a feel for Alexander the Great and what it was, like, what he did. And it's uh, Philip Freeman's Alexander the Great, and it's told like a story. It's very easy to read, um, and you kind of feel you know, like you're on an adventure and not a history lesson, essentially. So very, very good if you want something kind of light, you know? If you want historical fiction as well, there's a trilogy of books which I would recommend, which is uh, which are it's called the Alexander Trilo- Trilogy by an Italian writer called Massimo Valerio Manfredi, and he, he has this. It's like the story of Alexander's life, but it's told as a like an like true like a novel with all all of the all of the stories and stuff are sort of wrapped in it. It's brilliant. It's really really good. Well worth to read. Great. Um, well, that's excellent. And uh, I can tell you as well, uh, one piece of homework, if you don't have time to read all of those books, what you can do instead is go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It should be fairly quick in comparison. Uh, so, And they're very much appreciated, any reviews that come our way. Uh, beyond that, you can find the rest of our shows at showswhichyouknow.com. Uh, other ones where we discuss historical films, I think the 300 one is a good companion piece to this if you want to go back and re-listen to it. Or there's other podcasts like Blank Meets Blank, where uh, me and another gentleman called Jim make up a new television show by drawing two random things from a hat. And a lot of other good entertaining things uh, at showswhatyouknow.com. But for now, I believe that might in fact be the end of the reel. Cheers. Thanks a million, everyone. Bye.